My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant, before I knew her as my mother. It is a very common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age, frequently before the child has reached its twelfth month. Its mother is taken from it and hired out to some farm a considerable distance off, and the child is placed under the care of an old woman, too old for field labor. For what this separation has done, I do not know. I never saw my mother to know her as such more than four or five times in my life, and each of these times was very short in duration and at night. She was hired by a Mr. Stewart, who lived about twelve miles from my home. She made her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her day's work. She was a field hand, and a whipping is the penalty for not being in the field at sunrise. I do not recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep. But long before I waked, she was gone. The master is frequently compelled to sell, slaves he has fathered himself, out of deference to the feelings of his white wife. And, cruel as the deed may strike one to be, for a man to sell his own children to fleshmongers, it is often the dictate of humanity for him to do so. For, unless he does this, he must not only whip them himself, he must stand by and see one white son tie up his brother of but a few shades darker complexion than himself and ply the gory lash to his naked back. For thousands are ushered into the world annually who, like myself, owe their existence to white fathers, and those fathers most frequently their own masters. My first master's name was Anthony. I do not remember his first name. He was generally called Captain Anthony, a title which, I presume, he acquired by sailing a craft on Chesapeake Bay. He was not considered a rich slaveholder. He owned two or three farms and about thirty slaves. His farms and slaves were under the care of an overseer. The overseer's name was Plummer. Mr. Plummer was a miserable drunkard a profane swearer, and a savage monster. He always went armed with a cowskin and a heavy cudgel. I have known him to cut and slash the woman's head so horribly that even Master would be enraged at his cruelty and would threaten to whip him if he did not mind himself. Master, however, was not a humane slaveholder. It required extraordinary barbarity on the part of the overseer to affect him. He was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of the day by the most heart-rending shrieks of an own aunt of mine, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip upon her naked back till she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayers from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. The louder she screamed, the harder he whipped. And where the blood ran fastest, there 
he whipped the longest. He would whip her to make her scream and whip her to make her hush. And not until overcome by fatigue would he cease to swing the blood-clotted cowskin. I remember the first time I ever witnessed this horrible exhibition. I was quite a child, but I well remember it. I shall never forget it whilst I remember anything. It was the first of a long series of outrages, of which I was doomed to be a witness and a participant. It struck me with awful force. It was the bloodstained gate, the entry to the hell of slavery, through which I was about to pass. It was a most horrible spectacle. I wish I could commit to paper the feelings with which I beheld it. Excerpts from Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 27, Owning Our Brothers. We think of prejudice as having bigoted attitudes toward those who have different skin colors than we do. But I think this is a fairly recent development in human history. Remember the great chain of being? It was a medieval construct, but the Romans had their corollary to the great chain of being. Romans of the highest class and the plebeians were separated. There were several classes in between. After Hannibal's attack on Rome, Romans hated no one more than the Carthaginians. Carthaginians were from Africa, therefore of dark skin. Roman philippics against Carthage are filled with anger and hate. Yet I've never seen any reference to their skin color or race as a reason to denigrate those from Carthage. There are few that believe that Carthaginians were originally white Europeans who sailed down and settled in Africa, though this seems like quite a stretch to me. Even if this were the case, Nubians were certainly dark-skinned Africans, from what today is southern Egypt and northern Sudan. Romans had their wars with them as well. Not only have I seen no evidence in any Roman writings at the time that Nubians were due less respect due to their race, it appears to me from what I've read that Nubian nobles were afforded the respect from upper-class Romans that would be due nobles from any country with which Rome is at war. In William Shakespeare's play Othello, the title character is a black moor in a very white world. Yet he is generally treated as a man worthy of great respect, not scorn, derision, or prejudice. People back then were separated by classes, not skin color. Near as I can tell, it took a few centuries for Europeans to develop the kind of prejudice against those of African descent that was based on the color of skin that we know today. Prince Henry the Navigator's ships brought back the first blacks from Africa in 1441. At the time, Europeans hadn't been taught to be prejudiced against those with different skin tones. This is the one constant about prejudice that we know. It has to be taught. Children raised with those of other races never learn prejudice unless taught by their parents or others. The slave trade lasted from 1441 until 1865, at least in America. 
This takes us all the way through not only the complete change of thinking that occurred in what we've been calling the second axis, but also the period we covered last episode, the Industrial Revolution. The great chain of being, the belief that every person was born into his or her station in life, and that station was divinely ordained and not to be changed, was completely ingrained in the minds of medieval Europeans. It was believed in as strongly as we believe gravity pulls objects toward the center of the earth. As we've mentioned before, the belief that some people are born to higher station or class than other people can be seen in every pre-industrial agricultural society in the history of the world. It's most evident in the Indian caste system, but can be seen in any culture you want to look at. Deeply ingrained beliefs like this die very hard. Medieval England was extremely class-conscious, yet their concept of class was highly bound together with their concept of property, the hierarchy when something like serfs, villains, freeholding peasants, counts, earls, dukes, etc. There was more. Knights and warriors, as well as the clergy, were in there, but you get the idea. Merchants and city dwellers were not as well defined in the medieval great chain of being but they were low on the chain and were not well respected at all by upper-crust English society. Then came the Industrial Revolution that we just visited, and now English industrialists and entrepreneurs were not only wealthy, they often had more wealth than the local nobility. Even worse, the land the nobles owned, that had always been their source of wealth, was no longer the way to make the most significant money in England. It was commerce. Remember the second axis? For the last 150 years, thinkers had been increasingly demanding old notions of the great chain of being. This was happening in Britain, as well as the North American colonies. What was a self-respecting Brit with his or her age-old bigotry to do? As I've said, the inclination to separate into different hierarchical classes and for people with more wealth and power to see themselves as superior to those with less wealth and power was universal in pre-industrial countries. Finding social groups that one can dominate is a very strong human motivation. It has been a constant historical driver ever since the rulers and priests began separating themselves from the farmers in ancient Jericho. This can be called the dominant strive. We've been watching humanity overcome damaging human motivations throughout our podcasts. Our enjoyment in watching enemies sacrifice, torture as a means of interrogation, etc. In our last couple of episodes, we've watched as the English class system has begun to crumble. This has happened in England, but even more so in the colonies, especially New England, where people lived in more tight-knit communities. Farmers were no longer viewed as uneducated and occupying the bottom rung of society. Farming was a respected way to make a living, and farmers were generally literate, often were well-read, and commonly carried on a lively correspondence. We've talked briefly about game theory here and there, but what does it tell us about human behavior? Game theory separates human behavior into defecting, meaning acting in a selfish way in which one person wins and one person loses, and cooperating, that is, acting in such a way as everyone benefits from the transaction. 
This is an oversimplification of a complex mathematical theory, but game theory's general takeaway is that defection, that is, I win, you lose transactions, provide the actor with the biggest immediate payoff, but cooperating, that is, win-win transactions, provide the actor with smaller immediate payoffs, but larger long-term payoffs. When you look at this on a micro level, you see that it makes sense. If I defect, that is, take advantage of you in a transaction and leave you in a worse situation than before you entered the transaction, I may make a large profit, but you're not going to continue to engage in commerce with me. If I enter a win-win transaction with you, we'll continue our business dealings because you come out better for having made the deal. It's therefore beneficial for me to accept a smaller profit on my initial deal with you so that I can maintain our mutually profitable business relationship for years to come. On the macro scale, you can see this happen throughout history. If you zoom way out and look at it on a very large scale, you see war being a very common means of international conflict resolution. In the Old Testament, the book of 2 Samuel 11.1 1, talks about in spring at the time when kings go off to war. Back then, war was just the thing that kings did after the season's crops were planted and before it was time to harvest. During this time, the women could take care of the weeding and irrigating. In a sense, war was the default means of intercountry interaction. Though we still have a lot to learn in this respect, a review of modern history tells us that we've at least learned part of that lesson. In the long run, diplomacy is far more beneficial than going to war. We, especially Americans, remain far too fond of war and resort to it far too often but at least it's no longer an annual ritual. So how does all this relate to slavery? Modern social theory, a la Locke, Montesquieu, Rousseau, etc., in conjunction with the rise of a capitalist economy during the Industrial Revolution, all conspired to make colonial society more egalitarian. That is, the average New England farmer, who was literate and was active in town halls, was considered much more equal to those at the highest levels of New England society than was the case with the relationship between English peasants and dukes. This increasing egalitarianism would have probably spread throughout the colonies, and slavery would never have developed as it did if all the colonies had come from the same kind of economies as New England, with much smaller owner-run farms. But tobacco cultivation and export developed in Virginia and Maryland, and massive plantations, not small farms, developed in the Deep South. Both required significant use of cheap farm labor. In Virginia, the first black slaves were imported from Africa in 1619. The first slaves were probably held in bondage for a period of years, then freed or allowed to buy their freedom. This was the common practice of indentured servitude for English colonists who couldn't afford the cost of their transatlantic passage at the time. This changed over time and in 1705, Virginia passed their slave codes, which codified lifetime slavery for blacks. It had taken about 85 years, but Virginians learned to treat Africans and their descendants as a separate class of people who could be oppressed as the Virginians so chose. Remember how strong the human urge to treat weaker society members as a subordinate classes. As the societal pressure to outlaw dogfighting had begun as a small movement, 
and gradually grew so loud that Parliament finally felt pressured to outlaw it. So the pressure to treat workers at the lowest level of British society had reached the ear of Parliament, and, as we saw with the Sadler Commission last episode, would step in if the Virginians oppressed any class of Englishmen too severely. Yet the African slaves that were brought to Virginia were in English and had no supporter anywhere that would advocate for them. If Virginians wanted to enslave and completely oppress them, there would be no one to stop them. This, then, is what the Virginians did in 1705. Tobacco had slowly grown in popularity in England, leading to a steady increase in slavery in these colonies at the time. Rice was a major export of the plantations of the Deep South in the early colonial period. This was a very labor-intensive crop, leading to the growth of slaves in those colonies as well. But what was it that led to the mass importation of slaves in the late colonial period? We saw the answer, of course, last episode. Remember the huge increase in demand for cotton that took place in England during the Industrial Revolution? Once again, the southern colonies exported 70,000 bales of cotton to England in 1800, 1.3 million by 1830, and by 1860 were exporting over 4 million bales of cotton to England annually. Cotton was, of course, a very labor-intensive crop. This exponential increase in the amount of land under cultivation to grow cotton needed a comparable rise in the number of slaves to grow it. There were not quite 700,000 slaves in America in 1790. By the time of the Civil War in 1865, that number had grown to 4 million. How did the colonists get from the Africans will be treated like other indentured servants and freed after their period of indentured servitude has been served. Two, we will completely deprive all Africans and their descendants of their rights and make them slaves for life in less than a hundred years. In Virginia at the time, there tended not to be the large plantations, but smaller, often individually owned farms. Life was tough on these farms. Prices were inconsistent in the early days of tobacco exports. Tobacco is very labor-intensive. Failure and hunger were very real possibilities. It seems that something akin to slavery creep may have been active. There is no one to stand up and fight for the rights of Africans whose traditional rights were being violated. These rights were eroded bit by bit over the decades. After several decades of depriving Africans of rights of free men and women, ultimately, Dooming Africans to a lifetime of slavery probably wasn't such a huge step after eight decades of eroding their rights. In 1700, there were approximately 10,000 slaves of African descent in Virginia. This is definitely a significant number, but it gets us to an important point. As large as it is, it's minuscule compared to the 4 million slaves in the U.S. at the start of the Civil War, just 0.3%. As we've noted before, since the Industrial Revolution, we're moving more and more to a mass production world. Things are no longer done on the village scale they were done in medieval times. There had been rumors of Jews poisoning wells, and atrocities were targeted at various Jewish populations following the Black Death beginning in the 1400s. But there is no means of mass production then, and these atrocities were on a local scale. With the advent of mass means of communication, when anti-Jewish sentiment sparked anti-Jewish violence in Russia in the 1880s, the Jews didn't suffer some local attacks, 
they suffered mass pogroms throughout Russia. So it was with slavery in the U.S. It wasn't just local farmers that engaged in the practices it had started in Virginia. With time, great plantations sprung up in Virginia that produced tobacco on a mass scale. Further south, before the Industrial Revolution created the demand for cotton that it would in later decades, huge rice plantations required large number of slaves. Most southern plantations had at least 20, and often hundreds of slaves. By independence, the northern colonies had significant numbers of colonists that were opposed to slavery. Massachusetts, for example, banned slavery in 1783. And one by one, the northern colonies all abolished slavery. The northern colonists were much more Calvinist than the southern colonies, which helped to give them a more anti-slavery orientation than the south. The northern colonies also had one other huge advantage that helped them be anti-slavery. Slavery wasn't nearly as profitable in the North. The growing season was shorter in the North, and harder, rockier soil made for smaller New England farms that didn't need the kind of slave labor that southern plantations required. Upton Sinclair once said, It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. He might have added that, when you have an entire class of wealthy landowners whose wealth depends on the continued existence of slavery, you're just not going to get them to understand the unjustness of the institution. So it was in the South. The entire economy was based on slavery, and people were just not going to be convinced that the basis of their economy and civilization was barbaric. Still, there was a fair amount of anti-slavery sentiment in early America and in 1808, Congress passed a law that prevented any further importation of Africans for slavery. It was largely ignored. There was another impediment to convincing Southerners that slavery was an evil. Slaves themselves were worth a lot of money. A strong young slave could cost over $1,000. That's like $40,000 today. Southerners just weren't going to say, I want to get rid of a large amount of my wealth by freeing their slaves, no matter how brutal the practice was. Where does one start in recounting the cruelty of Southern slavery? I think a good place is selling family members away from each other. I've heard the argument that because family members were broken apart by being sold so often, slave mothers and fathers didn't develop the deep family bonds that non-slave parents do. Seriously? Let's review what Frederick Douglass's mother went through to see her son. She lived 12 miles away from her son. Walking five miles an hour, which is a very fast pace, she could cover a mile in about 12 minutes. This would be incredibly hard to maintain after working in the fields all day. But let's say she could do it. It would take her two and a half hours to make the trip one way, or a total of five hours round trip. Then she would have to see her son briefly, and completely exhausted by that point, make her way back to her master's plantation. She would have to do this at night, but she couldn't just do it after dark. She would have to wait until late at night, as she couldn't be caught out traveling when someone might still be on the roads. What if she were caught at night, miles from her master's plantation? Sounds like a runaway slave to me. She would certainly get the most severe punishment if that would happen. 
Then she would have to go to work the next day. Working in the field from sunup to sundown would be more than exhausting. She would surely be whipped or suffer some form of physical punishment for not being able to work hard enough in such an exhausted state. A mother going through all this to see her child? The question is not whether slavery weakened the mother-child bond, but whether it strengthened it. Most plantation slaves lived in squalid cabins packed with 10 to 12 slaves in each cabin. Plantation owners liked to put these cabins near the road to their mansion. This was because slaves were expensive. Visitors to the mansion, seeing many slave cabins, can be impressed at how much slave wealth the owner had. Slaves worked from sunrise to sunset, with only Sundays off. Cotton was a labor-intensive crop, and working long summer days in the intense sun of the southern states was brutal. It was illegal for slaves to receive an education, marry, own property, testify in court, or in some states, even to earn their freedom through their work. It wasn't the plantation owner's job to directly punish their slaves or even oversee their punishment. It was his job to hire the overseer who did this. Oddly, owners throughout the South seemed to require some form of innate cruelty as a threshold requirement for the job of overseer. Southern overseers during the slavery era were famously merciless in their punishment of slaves. One slave described his punishment this way. I was severely punished by a board cut full of holes to raise blisters. Then I was whipped with a strap to burst the blisters, which were then salted and peppered. Seriously? This was a slave which the owner had a considerable financial investment in. No dog owner who had paid a similar amount for a prized show dog would ever treat the dog like that. There's no explanation for this kind of treatment other than just pure cruelty. It makes no sense on any other level. Was this just an aberration? Or did slave owners really treat their slaves like this on a regular basis? Sadly, this was pretty standard. One slave reported that slaves on his plantation were whipped so badly that they were unable to walk for three days. Stories of whipping slaves until they died were not uncommon. Sojourner Truth, an escaped slave turned abolitionist like Frederick Douglass, wrote about one slave master. She said that he had a sick slave woman who was lingering with a slow consumption, that is, tuberculosis, whom he made spin regardless of her weakness and suffering. And this woman had a child that was unable to walk or talk at the age of five years. Neither could it cry like other children, but made a constant, piteous moaning sound. This exhibition of helplessness and imbecility, instead of exciting the master's pity, stung his cupidity, and so enraged him that he would kick the poor thing about like a football. Isabella's informant had seen this brute of a man when the child was curled up under a chair, innocently amusing itself with a few sticks, drag it thence that he might have the pleasure of tormenting it. She had seen him with one blow of his foot, send it rolling quite across the room and down the steps at the door. We've all seen pictures of slaves' backs crisscrossed by lashings. When a slave was pregnant, a small pit would be dug in the ground to accommodate her stomach before she was tied down and lashed. It's hard to imagine 
the pain of such torture. But whipping was not the only punishment a slave might endure. Mutilation, branding, imprisonment, and even murder were practiced. If a slave was considered to have committed an unforgivable infraction, he or she might be burned at the stake. Then, slaves always needed to fear being sold away from the slave's family. After the Industrial Revolution brought a high demand for cotton, there was always a strong trade in slaves from northern slave states like Virginia and Maryland to the Deep South. Everyone knew that working conditions were brutal there. These slaves were therefore often threatened with being sold to a slave trader who would take the slave to the Deep South. This was a valid threat, as it happened with regularity. All of these were horrors that slaves had to fear. But female slaves had another horror. Their bodies were not their own. They belonged to their masters. There's no sheriff's department or other authority they could appeal to when they were sexually abused, and they were, all over the South. Southern masters and overseers felt free to have liaisons with their slaves, adding to the great burdens of slavery to women's slaves throughout the South. Today, a powerful man who abuses his position by demanding sexual favors can make the national news. But this was abuse by men in positions of power on a mass scale, with no accountability whatever. All of colonial America doesn't deserve to be tarnished with a slavery brush. It's true that slavery had spread to northern colonies in the early colonial period. But following the path of Britain, who abolished slavery in 1807, and the general path of human history, in which society has evolved to ever more civilized forms of organization, northern colonies, one by one, all outlawed slavery. It was only one very small segment of the colonial population that greatly benefited and strongly promoted slavery in the colonies, the rich southern plantation owners. But this segment had the power in the South, and was able to leverage that power into transforming the Southern economy into one completely reliant on slave labor. Industrial revolution that spawned the southern slave economy. A small group of industrialists were able to sentence huge numbers of children to lives of squalid misery, not to mention the masses of adults that spent 12 to 16 hours a day working in Industrial Revolution era factories for a pittance. So it was with the southern colonies and states. There, it was a small group of rich plantation owners that were able to buy the mass numbers of slaves that ended up as the basis of the Southern economy. As the entire economy was based on the plantation system, the plantation owners were able to convince the rest of the Southerners that slavery was a good thing for the South. Again, getting us back to our point that in the modern era, a small number of people can come to power and use that power to oppress huge segments of the population. How were they able to convince the majority of non-slave-owning Southerners that slavery was a good thing? Again, all Europeans had lived in a world defined by the great chain of being, where everyone's place was defined as above this group and below that group. These things die very hard. 
except for those on the bottom of the societal rung. Everyone had always defined themselves as being superior to someone else. When you look at the justifications that were used for slavery, these are the kinds of arguments used. It's God's order. There has always been slavery. It's in the Bible. So what was it like, owning slaves? I think there's a tendency to try to find a softer side to Southern slavery. Remember Gone with the Wind? Slavery didn't seem so bad there, did it? When you buy an expensive car, don't you maintain it well so that you get a good return on your investment? If you were to have an expensive slave, wouldn't you feed and treat him or her so well that you would similarly get a good return on your investment? The answer seems to have been an emphatic no. This makes no objective sense. This has been researched thoroughly and the results are clear. When you treat dogs brutally and beat them when they do things wrong, they will learn. When you treat them kindly, however, and reward them for doing things right, they learn approximately 10 times faster than the dog trainer who uses punishments rather than positive incentives. This has been proven true with humans as well. Incentives just work better than punishments. There are scores of thousands of slave owners during our colonial and pre-Civil War periods. Slavery lasted for well over 200 years. This was more than enough time for slave owners to learn that positive incentives work better than punishments for encouraging slaves. Yet Southern slave owners never did. They continued to treat their slaves brutally, even though it was to their financial detriment. This shows us how strong the desire is to consider ourselves superior to social inferiors when appropriate cultural checks on this are not present. Whether or not Southern slavery was wrong, buying slaves from African slave traders wasn't a cultural evil because the European slave traders didn't go and steal the slaves from their villages, but purchased them from other Africans who were simply carrying on a previously well-developed slave trade. This was an argument I heard on occasion when I was younger, one that ranks right up there with Blacks prefer segregation because they want to associate with their own kind. Another argument that made the rounds during the era of segregation, where it's true that African tribes would sometimes raid one another and sometimes take slaves. This was not a large part of the economy prior to Prince Henry the Navigator's captains establishing an African-European slave trade. Most of the slaves that were transported to the Americas from Africa were from Central West Africa. This was inhabited by tribal cultures that were not densely populated. Over the course of the slave trade, just shy of 13 million slaves would be put on ships to be transported to the Americas. A slave trade of this magnitude was definitely not carried on by traditional raids from one African tribe against another. The slave trade created a professional class of slave raiders that existed specifically to raid tribes and carry away slaves. These slave raiders decimated the population of West Central Africa to the point that traditional cultures and economies that had existed prior to the slave trade were unrecognizable by the latter stages of the slave trade. Slavery not only destroyed the lives of slaves exported to the Americas, it destroyed the tribal life that had existed in West Central Africa before the trade. 13 million slaves sent to the Americas. Even accounting for the massive numbers of Africans that died in transit due to the subhuman conditions on slave ships, 
North America didn't have anywhere close to that number of slaves. This shows how significant the slave economies were in the Caribbean and Brazil. Slavery in the Caribbean was particularly barbaric, but that's outside the scope of this episode. Slavery was finally abolished after the Civil War by the 13th Amendment in 1865. This was late compared to Western European nations. France abolished slavery in 1794, Germany in 1807, Spain in 1811, and England in 1833. What does it say about the U.S. that it took a civil war? It was responsible for the death of 620,000 bright young Americans to bring about the abolition of slavery. In antiquity, skin color didn't seem to have much, if anything, to do with one social group's feeling superior to another social group. Yet when Americans, as colonists, learned to use skin color to delineate classes of people, this dividing line stuck and seeped deeply into the psyche of some Americans. Is it true that society always inclines toward a higher moral plane? Where do we stand now in discarding this racial line that became so entrenched during the period of slavery in our country? We'll revisit this as we get closer to the present in our journey to now. I highly recommend this week's read, which is his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. If you can't read it right now, at least watch the movie Seven Years a Slave. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book, which is well worth the read, and I've heard good things about the movie. Enjoy. See you next week.